beautiful, beautiful day. Go ahead and turn in your Bible. Let's go to Mark chapter 8. And I'm going to find you right there in just a second. Now, how many of y'all, listen, I, li- I love springtime, but how many of you guys are enjoying this weather now that it's finally here? It's actually not as warm as it should be, but aren't you glad that the snow and the ice is gone? Hey, man, we should be praising Jesus for that. I came to Atlanta, and I saw the ice storm. I was like, it ain't, it's not even ankle deep. Shut the highway down. I'm like, I don't know what to do. I mean, I, mean, I was just, it was blowing me away. But anyway, you know what my favorite thing about springtime is? Football season. Spring games. My team just had their spring game. How many of y'all football fans in here? The majority. Praise the Lord. So you're not going to miss my football analogies. All right. Listen, I love, I love football. Now, let me tell you, today the name of this title, if you're writing notes, the name of this sermon is Your Big Comeback. Your Big Comeback. I'm so glad my football coach is here today, and I wasn't even going to tell this story. But, man, it's just so appropriate now. And, and I'm probably messing up the details. But let me, before I go to that, let me, let me talk real quick. How many of you guys watched the Super Bowl, by the way, this past year? How many of y'all was going for the Broncos? Let me see hands. Everybody like. How many Seahawks fans in the house? Uh, Just a couple. All right, praise the Lord. How many of y'all was watching that game knowing that Peyton Manning is a superior quarterback for the Broncos, for the people who don't know what I'm talking about? Superior quarterback, shouldn't even be a game. Playing against a second-year guy. I mean, it shouldn't even have been a game. I was looking at that. I went to uh, a place in town. I'm watching the game. And as the game started... You know, the Seahawks, they scored a touchdown. I was like, okay, here they come. They're going to come back. They're going to come back. Nothing happened. They score again. I'm like, okay, okay, here, here it come. Hey, man, he's going to get on his thing. He's going to bring them back. N- nothing happened. And you know, I was sitting there the whole game waiting for this comeback to happen. How many of y'all, like, halftime, you was like, okay, okay, Peyton Manning, okay, he's going to get himself together. He's going to go in the locker room. They're going to have a little talk with the coach. They're going to come out. They're going to come out ready. How many of y'all thought it was going to be a game after that? I did too. But you know what? We sat there and we waited for something to click. We waited for something to happen. Nothing happened. And it's kind of like that in life. See, sometimes we really love the comeback stories, don't we? But it's kind of like that in life. Sometimes we're trying something and it's not working. We're trying something and it's not working. But then we keep trying it and it's still not working. And we got stuff in front of us that we're trying to overcome and we're trying this and it's not working. It just seems like the devil's got our number. It seems like nothing, I, I can't make enough money. I can't get ahead in life far enough. I can't do things just enough to get ahead. I just can't seem to get over the hump. I'm in life. I'm now approaching my 40s, my 50s, my 60s. I'm getting up there, and I'm waiting for the comeback to start. Because I thought I'd be further along than what I am right now. How many of y'all ever felt like that in your life? You felt like you waited on the comeback. Well, I did, like, I did too, and then I was always watching that game. It was just very disappointing. So I know we love comebacks. Everybody in their life wants to see the comeback. As a matter of fact, when we're kids, we really love the comeback so much, it's kind of like we almost anticipate in life that we're going to have to come back. Like, there's going to be something in your life someday you're going to have to come back from, a deficit you're going to be down by, and you're going to have to make this comeback. And you know what? It's so inbreded in us and, and in our DNA as people that when we're kids and we're outside in the driveway and we're, and we're playing one-on-one or we might even be by ourselves and we're shooting jumpers, what are we doing? We're counting down the clock, aren't we? Five, four, three, oh, and, and you're just by yourself. You just, oh, 
three, two, one, and you fade away. And, and if it goes in, you're like, yeah, game one. And you, can, you made the comeback, right? Game winning drive. You threw the touchdown or you caught it. One second on the clock. He goes up. Uh, touchdown. Game over. Oh, they win. Did anybody else ever do that? I don't know what girls used to do, but guys, that's what we did, didn't we? I have never, ever seen a little kid outside practicing the, the, uh, you know, the beat down. I've always, pract- I've always seen kids practicing the comeback. I've never seen a kid like, oh, and the game's over, and they won 100 to 5. I've never seen a kid practicing this. We practice the comeback. It's almost like way deep down in us, we know at some point in our lives, we're going to be behind the eight ball trying to come back. We love it in our sports. Y'all know Michael Jordan? He's known for this over and over what? They get down, and he brings them back. This guy was so bad, they won three titles. He retires, takes a break, comes back, wins three more in a row. He comes back. We love that, don't we? We love the story. Now we like to compare Jordan to LeBron. Amen. How many LeBron fans in the house? None. Oh, a lot more. Oh, he's over here like, how many Jordan fans? You got to be at least 30 or older to really appreciate that. Okay. All right. We like it in our clothes. At least, look, everybody in here has got a pair of clothes or shoes or pants that went out of style and you're waiting for the comeback. Maybe a hairstyle even. You're like, I'm bringing this back. I am bringing this back. You watch and you go out of the house and you're the only one and you, you wait for the comeback. And you wait for the comeback and you, and you keep trying it again and you wait for the comeback and, 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 and nothing happens. You know, you try to get your friends, girl, do your hair like mine. We're going to bring this thing back. You know what I mean? We like to do that. We do it with our clothes. Somewhere, somebody in this room has got a pair of platforms that you've been dusting off, waiting. I just can't wait today. They're coming back. You know, everything goes around. It's cyclical, man. In life, that's how it is. You tell your friend, you sit around. It's coming back. Got your polyester suit. It's coming back. Jerry Curl is coming back. It's coming back. For the white people, the mullet is coming back. It's coming back. <laughs> we, we don't like to watch blowouts. And listen, I just got news for you. Listen, some stuff in life just ain't coming back. It just ain't coming back. Am I, am I right? So let me, let me talk real quick. Adam, when God created Adam, he created Adam as a king. Right? And I like to break down the kingdom in this church because I really want people to understand this Bible is not a religious book. This is a legal document. This is a will and a testament. If I got my thoughts in my mind, that's my will. That's my intention. But if you're a lawyer in here or you know a lawyer in here and you know that if I take my will, what's in my mind, and I put it on paper, it becomes a legal document. Now it's a testament. It's legal. So God was so smart. That's why you have a Bible. He was so smart. He wanted to take his thoughts of you and not just act them out in the world, but he wanted to put them on paper and make this a legal document. This is a legal document. It's full of legal terms. It's not full of religious terms. It's full of legal terms like righteousness, righteousness, being in right position with an authority. Amen. So Adam was created as the king. He was created and he had dominion. The Bible says that God gave him dominion over the fish and dominion over the world and dominion over the seas and everything that creeped upon the ground. And he named every animal. This man had ultimate authority. 
This man had God, listen, he was created in the image of God, and he was given dominion. The Bible says that when God created him, he looked at them and said, let them have dominion. In other words, God said, I'm going to let what's in heaven get into the earth, but I'm going to do it through my children. Amen. God's ultimate intention, what the whole idea of this whole world is, is he is trying to get what's in heaven into the earth. He is trying to make earth like heaven, and he is trying to make you like Jesus. This is what God is up to. If you're wondering what God is up to, this is all he's up to. It's a very simple idea. He is trying to make earth like heaven and make you like Jesus. So Adam had all this dominion. He had all this authority. And then you know the story. Adam takes the advice of his wife. He obeys the voice of one that wasn't his authority. And because of that, he becomes a criminal, actually. The Bible says that he became an enemy of God. So Right here in the book of Genesis, I'm not going to read the scripture, but I'll tell you where it is. Genesis 2 verse 17, the Bible says that now the wages of sin is death. But this scripture, it talks about, he said, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. And what God was saying is, you don't want to be in a deficit to me. Because, you see, I am so holy, so perfect, I, I accept nothing but perfection because I'm God. In fact, I am so holy, so separate, so different. Nobody like me is so much so that I cannot even look upon sin. My eyes cannot even look upon sin. Amen. So we witness in the first book of the Bible the greatest deficit in human history. We love, we love, we love to hear about the comebacks. We was playing a team. I can't remember the team. Coach will tell me later. We was playing a team. I think it was Catawba somebody. Catawba somebody. And um, North Carolina, we're playing the team. A couple of our guys got stranded on the way to the game. And I think we were down 21 to nothing at the half. Am I right, coach? 21 to nothing. Nothing was clicking. We was trying. This team was beating up on us. Bigger guys. And, you know, we were just a fast, roughhouse team. And, you know, we're on the field trying to make things happen. And then all of a sudden, I mean, we had a deficit. And it's hard to come back against this team. This is a championship game. Okay. It wasn't just a, t a pushover team, okay? So we were playing this game, and then all of a sudden, our guys, they coach sent somebody out to the highway to pick up our guys. This is minor league football, okay? And so here they come, our, our, our star quarterback, a couple of our key guys, they come running down the, down the hill to the fence. And I'm looking, and I'm standing back, and I'm looking, and I'm like, oh, boy. Here come our guys. Now, it's about to be on. As soon as they stepped on the field... We couldn't be stopped. It was amazing. Every pass connected. All the way down the field. Touchdown, 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 touchdown. And we came back so fast and got in position and ended up winning the game. Still a tough game, but we ended up winning the game. And that was one of the greatest comebacks I had ever been a part of. And it was exciting. How many of y'all know it's very exciting to know that when you're down, you're not out? How many of y'all know that sometimes it looks like you're going to lose, but God's got help coming. It's on the way. Amen. How many of you know that God has never took his eye off you for one second? You are the apple of his eye. I don't care what you're going through, what you did yesterday, or what you're doing right now. God has got help on the way for you. And there's going to be a comeback. See, we love the comeback. And God's got, listen, every, I, I like to say this phrase because it's so true. Because it seems like sometimes we're down, we're out, we're trying things that's not working. And we don't know, God, I'm doing everything I can do, but it's not working. Every setback in your life is a setup for a comeback.
Every setback is a setup for a comeback. Now, let me go through this kind of quick. I want to read my scripture here. Now, I just told you about the greatest deficit in human history. Man's sin on the scales trying to balance God's holiness. How many of you know that no matter how many good deeds you put on this side, you can be the best person in the world sitting in here. You could hold doors open for old ladies. You could pay other people's bills at the restaurant. You could never have cussed or smoked or drank in your life. And God said on your best day, your righteousness is like filthy rags to me. That's how good he is. And no matter how many good deeds we put on the other side of the scale, it doesn't even move the scale. There's no way we can come back. It's too far gone. There's no way. See, what religion has done to people is somehow brought God's standards down to a human reachable level. And so what we've done is, if we've taken stuff like the Ten Commandments, and we said, oh, well, I don't murder, and I love God, and I, you know, I don't cheat my neighbors, and I don't, you know, and we say, oh, well, I'm doing pretty good. My good kind of outweighs my bad. I know when I get to heaven because my good outweighs my bad, I know God's going to let me in. Or maybe I know, like, I know that something's, you know, things are going crazy right now in my life, but I know God, when I pray, I know he's going to help me because I'm a good, I'm good. I'm good. See, in the garden, the, the tree that they ate from, it was called the knowledge of good and evil. See, it's not just about your evil. It's about when you think you're good enough. Because, see, if you're good enough, then what Jesus did was not needed. And if we think that even our sin is greater than what he did, we are, we are bringing down what Jesus did instead of exalting it. Whatever your mistakes are in here, I promise you, it is not greater than what Jesus did. That's good news. No matter what you're sitting here thinking right now, no matter what you did, if you fall all the way in the car, all the way to church, no matter if you, last night you were somewhere you shouldn't have been, no matter if last week you did your worst deed you ever did in your life, no matter if you just got out of prison this morning, none of your mistakes are greater than his act of obedience. None of the times that you messed up did it balance the scale back after what God did. Amen? So now let me tell you real quick. Go to Mark 8. Skip this one. Go to Mark 8. Now I'm going to tell you about the greatest comeback in human history. Y'all ready? Jesus was so bad... He predicted his comeback three times in the book of Mark. He predicted his death, and then he predicted his resurrection. I'm going to show you one right here. Mark 8, verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed. Jesus said, it's going to get bad, y'all. They're going to kill me. But watch this. He said, but after three days, I'm going to get up. Amen? Amen. Give me Mark. Amen. You can clap. Give me Mark 9, 30 and 32. Watch this. Next chapter. Then they departed there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. Next verse. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed... He'll come back. It's not over. They're going to kill me, but it's not over. Give me Mark chapter 10. I like how the Holy Spirit puts this thing in succession. 8, 9, and 10. He really wants to drive it home, don't he? Look at this. 
10, verse 32. You should jot these down because the next time you feel bad, you got to look at stuff like this and say, it's not over. It's not over. Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. And then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. He's again. Y'all know in sports when somebody predicts a win, that's a big deal, ain't it? I mean, Sports Center blows up. Oh, they guaranteed a victory tonight. They're not, they said they're not going out. They're not going to be sent home. When you guarantee a victory, you got to deliver, don't you? Because everybody's watching. And Jesus is so bold, he's saying, no, it's going to get bad. But it's not over. Next verse. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priest. They're going to betray me. And to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, delivering him to the Gentiles. Next verse. And they will mock him, scourge him. Scourging is not like fussing you out, okay? Beat him. A scourging is a beating. And spit on him. One of the nastiest things anybody could ever do. And they're going to kill him. And the third day, he's going to come back. Amen? Amen. Jesus was so bad, he predicted his own comeback three times. Now, let me tell you why it's so amazing and why I say that this is the greatest comeback in the human history. Amen? Watch this. Mary would have been stoned and lost her baby if they would have found her. Jesus was born in a cave with barn animals in a feeding trough. Herod the king heard a king was coming, and he tried to kill Jesus before Jesus was even born. They plotted to kill him many times as an adult, but he got away every time. He was falsely accused of crimes, spit on, punched, and beaten by strangers. He was wrongly convicted and beaten beyond human recognition. The Bible says after the beating, you couldn't even recognize that he was a person. No movie can even capture this image. Jesus was beaten so bad before the cross that when they stood him back up, they couldn't even tell he was a person. Greatest comeback of all time. He carried his heavy cross up a mountain while they continued to whip him. They drove nails in his hands and in his feet and put a crown of thorns on his head that pierced down into his skull and the blood dripped down and blinded him in his eyes as he hung on the cross. He was abandoned by his friends, the disciples. As soon as trouble hit, they all split. Peter said, I will go to even death for you, Jesus. And Jesus said, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Your best friends, when trouble hit, will leave you. This is the greatest comeback in history. Even God turns his back on Jesus because Jesus takes all of our sin and puts it on himself. He takes all of our shame, all of our guilt, all of our mess-ups, all of the things that make us who we are as sinners. He put it all on himself, and he carried it. Have you ever carried around guilt and shame in your life? Let me see your hand if you've ever felt guilty. Me too. Don't you know how that feels? Sometimes when you just feel guilty, you feel bad, you made a mistake. Imagine the weight of the world, that guilt, how bad that felt. I bet you that felt worse than the whips. I bet it felt worse than the crown of thorns to carry my shame. To every time I would make a mistake because God is outside of time. He's not in time with us. He created time. He's outside of time. For God to look at my sins, past, present, and future, take all of that, put it on himself, and he was an innocent man, for him to do that for me is amazing. This is the greatest comeback of all time. Watch this. 
He was abandoned even by God. So God, Jesus cried out, God, why have you forsaken me? Because God has to turn his back when Jesus takes on sin because God cannot even look at the sin that's on his son. He has to let it finish. He has to let it be completed. He has to finish the work. And with his last breath, he cried out, it is finished. And so Jesus goes to the grave and everybody thought it was over. The religious people thought it was over. All the town people thought it was over. The disciples thought it was over. As a matter of fact, they thought it was over so much so that uh, Peter went back and got his old job back. He said, hey, y'all, it was cool while we were hanging out. I'm going fishing. And so he goes back to his fishing business. It was so bad. Hope was gone. The devil said, I got him now. Now I got him. See, I know that if he was able to get up, I know if I hadn't killed him and taken him out now, that I would never be able to reign. See, all the devil is trying to do is make earth his kingdom instead of yours. It was given, the Bible says, to the sons of men. God intended for this to be our domain to rule. So the devil is trying to set up his kingdom. He said, oh, if I take Jesus out, I know it's over. But then... Matthew 27, 63. I don't know if I gave you that in the back, but if I did, throw it up there. But then something really funny happened. Listen to this. The religious people. Now, I'm not talking about Roman soldiers. I'm talking about the religious people. Watch what they do. They said, sir, we remember why he was still alive, how that deceiver said he was going to make a comeback. It comes back to their mind, the guarantee that he made. He made it so boldly. He said, I, he said, you can tear this temple down, and in three days, I will raise it up again. He said, I'm going to make a comeback. They remembered, if you, you can look in your Bible later at the whole story, they remembered his prediction of the comeback, and it was so scary to them that they went to the religious leaders and said this. They said, we don't know what to do, so uh, I, I'm, I'm scared that he is going to come back, and just in case... So they go to the, the Roman soldiers, I'm sorry. They go and say, they say, Pilate, you need to give us some military force to guard this tomb. So Pilate says, here, take a Roman guard, put it around the tomb and guard it as best you can. Now, when you see in your Sunday school picture of the tomb and a Roman guard, you see one guy standing there. A Roman guard, let me just give you a, a quick history lesson. A Roman guard is 600 to 6,000 Roman soldiers. A Roman guard is a, that's a big thing. That's not, that's not one guy standing there guarding Jesus. Okay? And Jesus, and then they said, look, he comes out. The first people to see Jesus was the Roman soldiers. These are the first people. They run back to the religious people and they say, okay, um, we can't tell our boss that we lost the dead guy. Because there's two things about Roman soldiers. Number one, they're not allowed to tell a lie. It's a cultural thing. Number one. Number two, if they lose their prisoner, they're supposed to kill themselves. Amen. So you remember when Paul and Silas was in jail and the jail started shaking, everybody was set free and the Roman soldier was about to kill himself. And they said, don't do that. We're all here because he can't explain how he lost all these people. But that's the same thing they were going to have to do there. So they go to the religious people. And here's what the religious people say. Take large sums of money. We're going to finance this lie. Take large sums of money and say that the disciples came and stole him. And to this day, if you go to Israel, they still believe 
that he didn't get up, but the disciples stole him. The devil will always make sure that the lie is financed. He will always make sure the lie is financed. That's why when it, when it gets like to offering time in churches and everybody goes, like, it's time for the tithe and offer. Everybody's like, I don't know why. It's because the devil starts his work right then. You know why? He don't want the kingdom to have financing. He don't want the truth to have what it needs. But when you turn on your TV, they spare no expense to take your children out. When you turn on the TV, they, I'm telling you, now, today, they have stuff on TV that you would not have dreamed of when you was a kid, even when I was a kid. I'm looking at stuff, and I'm like, what channel is this? Is this HBO late night? It's 12 o'clock in the middle of the day. It's crazy. Can y'all agree the world needs to come back? The world needs to come back. So the devil is financing the lie. But here's what's funny. Jesus made this incredible comeback. Now, all this stuff that Jesus did, it was not just to get you a ticket to heaven. Jesus came to pay a debt. The debt that Adam caused, caused God. The Bible says that in Romans 8, it says that God did not even spare his only son. Because the debt was so great, in order to redeem us, he had to send a perfect lamb. A spotless sacrifice. It couldn't be mankind's advancements, our technologies, stuff that makes us, you know, we're cool now. We got iPhones and gadgets and gizmos and we can get to the moon and back and we can, we can take pictures of your house from Google Earth and you can look at, you know, your house from the sky and all this stuff. And we can do all this stuff. So mankind's attempt to advance and progress, this is what we're built for. We, we're trying to advance and progress. But God's idea of advancement and progression has nothing to do with those things. God's idea of advancement and, and progression is not going forward without him. His idea of advancement, listen to this, his idea of advancement is not going forward, it's returning. If you want to go forward in life, you don't go forward, you return to God. See, if you want to get ahead in life, I don't care how much money you get, how much fame you get, it's still going down. Have you noticed that we have all the technology in the world? We can build beautiful houses but can't put homes in them. Homes are more dysfunctional than ever. We can live longer, but we have no life left in those years. We can advance. We can put it on another planet, but I don't care what planet we move to, there we're going to be. In our imperfection, in need of a savior. So in order to make the big comeback, Jesus had to go and say, God, I will pay this debt. It's too big for them. And he said, all you have to do is return to me. Are you with me? Jesus came to pay a debt, not to bring a religion. Religion is what is tearing the world up because religion gives us a sense of accomplishment. And if we feel like we've done something, then sometimes we don't feel like we really need God. I remember one lady told me one time, she said, you know, she had a great job. And she was, this is right when computers had first started really being popular. She was a computer programmer and she had good money, good job. Life was going good. She just really didn't have need of any type of religion. And I remember her telling me, you know, I'm good. I got it under control. You know, I'm eating every day, got a roof over my head. Some people just want to get up and be all right, don't they? I'm not trying to get up and be all right. I want to know why am I here. I want to know what am I supposed to be doing. Because if my life is what the Bible says it is, a vapor, a puff of smoke, what am I here for? And I want to know what this thing is all about. I don't want to be here and just be all right. And I told her, I said, you know, unfortunately, being good is not a qualification to getting your debt paid you got to have a savior. And this is where the king 
of kingdoms and the kingdom teaching that we do and the things we talk about really just dissolves all types of religious thought because as soon as you think you got a sense of righteousness, the Bible says you have to, in Romans 1, you have to ignore God's righteousness in order to establish your own. And this is what religion does. Oh, man, I go to church every week. I put money in the basket. I know how to do church. I raise my hand when they sing. I do it. I get in there. I'm on time. Praise the Lord. I, I, I mean, I'm doing my thing. I know God's proud of me. And then you got some other people that's struggling. And both people feel wrongly justified because the guy who's got it going on feels like he's got it going on because he's doing good. He's performing well. The guy standing on the corner with the sign that says, please help homeless. He feels like God's not proud of me because I'm not doing well. But the reality is both people are dead and need a savior. Both people are in desperate need of a comeback. I don't care what you drive. You are way behind in the game of life if you don't have a savior. You are way behind. Society is not advancing like we want it to, even though we are advancing technologically. We're relying on technology instead of theology. We're relying on what we call the truth instead of the real deal. We're relying on religion to kind of patch us up, cover it up. You know, I feel good. It kind of gives you a little bit of Novocaine for the week. Instead of really getting in front of God and saying, I give up. What am I to do? How many of y'all know it doesn't even matter how far you get in life, eventually you're going to have to return? Amen? The Bible says that the kingdom of God is righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you are saved this morning or not. I don't know if the meaning, I don't know if you have accepted Jesus as your Lord. But if you have, that means you have the Spirit of God living in you. And the Bible says that if you have that in you, you should be experiencing overflowing feeling of righteousness, knowing that my Savior has paid my sin. I am good with God, me and God. I have no sin consciousness. God's not remembering your sin. Why do you keep bringing it up? That's kind of unbelievable to think about that, but the Bible says that he, he says in Hebrews, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins I shall remember no more. Why? Because when Jesus died, he said, it is finished. He went down to the grave and the Bible says that he took back the keys of death, hell, and the grave. And then on the third day, God raised him up. And the significance of Jesus getting out of the tomb, meaning it means that the debt is fully paid. If there was one ounce of sin left on Jesus, he would not have been able to get it up because death could hold him down legally but if you ever see a prisoner walking out of jail that is a sign when you see the prisoner coming out when you see Jesus leaving the tomb on resurrection day that is a sign to you hallelujah that the debt is paid your debt is paid your debt is paid amen so here's here's I got I got another kicker for you it had nothing to do, the resurrection had nothing to do with your love for him. I remember not going to church because I said, there's no way I can love God the way they love God. Give me John 3.16 on the screen. How many of y'all know John 3.16? It's the first one you learn in Sunday school. Say it with me. For God so loved the world, he gave his only, that whosoever shall not but now, where in that verse do you see anything about you having everlasting life because you love God? Some of us, we want credit because we love God. I love God. I love the Lord. There's no doubt about it. 
I put my whole life on the line to move here and plant a new church because I want to see a transformation happen. Amen? But nowhere in this verse does it say, if you love the Lord, you will have eternal life. It says, he so loved you that he gave his son so you could have life. It says nothing about anything about you because all the glory goes to him. He put your debt on him because you couldn't pay it. And he, God did not go soft on sin. God beat Jesus and whipped him and punished him until every ounce of sin and debt was paid. And the Bible says that he did it because he loved you. Do you have to love Jesus to be saved? No. To be saved. Oh, I just shocked all of y'all. Let me slow down right there. The Bible says... That if you return to me, I will return to you. It says nothing about your love for him. As a matter of fact, Romans 10 verse 9. I don't know if I gave you that one. Did I give you Romans 10, 9? Romans 10, 9? I love this. I'm breaking this down. Are y'all having a good time on Easter? I am preaching. Romans 10, 9. Let me flip. Because I don't know if I gave the guys in the back that one. If it's good, say Amen. Romans 10, now I want to prove, because I, I did feel a little bump right there when I said that. What do you mean I don't have to love him? Here's what's funny. In 1 John, the Bible says that the world acts the way they act because the love of the Father is not in them. Not their love for him. It says, there we go. It says they don't know how much he loves them. That's why they chase those medications. That's why they chase that career like it's going to save them. That's why they put that stuff first. That's why they lean on dollar bills under God we trust instead of leaning on the God who is the one you can trust in. That's why because you have not ever been taught probably how much God loves you. We are taught love the Lord, obey God, and you will be blessed. But see, that was the scripture in the law during Moses' day. In Deuteronomy it says, if you obey the voice of the Lord your God, you shall be blessed. How However, now that Jesus was raised from the grave, now that scripture means this to you. If you receive Christ, you are blessed in him. Those requirements are no longer applicable. That's a big word. Applicable to you. Amen. I learned some new words this morning. I was trying to use them. Applicable. Okay. Amen. Watch this. That if you confess with your mouth, say confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart, God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That word saved is a, is a, it's a Greek word, sozo, if you're writing down uh, words in your notes, S-O-Z-O. It means, it doesn't mean a ticket to heaven. It means if you call on the name of the Lord, he will sozo you. In other words, he will make you whole. He will heal your disease. He will bring you back from whatever you're going through. He will do it because he loved you and you called his name. He's not requiring that you love him. That'll happen. When you know how much he loves you, oh my God, you're going to fall so far in love with this Jesus I'm talking about. You're like, you're, Pastor Mike, what do I need to do if I get saved today? What does that mean? I need to go home and throw away my CDs? I need to go home and get rid of this? I need to cut my friends off? No, you don't need to do any of that. I'm going to tell you what you need to do. You need to focus on Jesus and let the chips fall where they may. That's what you need to do. Nobody followed behind me and said, you know, Mike, you need to get rid of that music. You need to get rid of that way you talk. You need to get rid of that attitude. You need to get rid of your temper. You know what? I said, man, this Jesus loves me so much. And I started focusing on that. And the Bible says that whatever you behold, you become. 
So if I'm beholding junk on TV, no wonder I'm be turning into it. If you don't want your children to turn into one of those people, don't let them watch it. Because you behold, you become what you behold. It's a real simple principle. You start doing what you see others doing. It's inadvertent. I call it the vitamin C effect. One day I'll preach that. How many of y'all like vitamin C, like orange juice? You drink it, right? Why do we drink it? For the what? The vitamin C, right? How many of y'all, when you drink the vitamin C, you know it's good for you, right? How many of y'all, when you take it in, feel it working? You feel your body get stronger. You, I feel healthier. I drank some juice this morning. You don't feel the vitamin C working. Neither do you feel when you go to church and you take it in, but it's working. Neither do you feel when you get around those environments that you shouldn't be around, but it's working. If it's going in, it's working. Oh, Pastor Mike, it's not changing me. It's not making me think different. Neither is the vitamin C, right? You don't feel it. But if you're taking it in, it's working. I'm preaching. Amen. All right, let me finish this last thought right here. Jesus did not, here's another announcement. So I think we're good on that. It's not because you're a good person. Romans 5, 8, throw that up there for me. Oh, I got it right here. Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his love towards us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for me. You don't even, okay, write these in your notes. I don't have to love him. I don't have to be a good person. This is good. This is getting good for some of us. Okay. He still died for you while you were a sinner. He didn't die for you because you came to church today. He died while you were sinning. While you was at the spot. Doing the deed. In trouble. In jail. Whatever you did. He got on the cross. Paid the debt. You owe God nothing. You owe him nothing. You can return. Like the prodigal son that went away and wasted his whole life savings. If y'all know that, that, that story, Luke 15. And then he just comes to himself. One day he realizes, I need to go back home. You owe God nothing. You don't have any ability to bring yourself back. Romans 5 verse 6. When you were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Some of y'all are like, uh, Pastor Mike, I'm not sure if I can get saved today because I got an ungodly lifestyle. I know it's not biblically right. What about me? And I'm here to tell you right here in Romans 5, verse 6, when you had no strength, no ability, no credibility, no qualifications, the Bible says that Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't die for me because I'm a preacher. He died for you because you was in need of a savior. He died for you because we couldn't fix it ourselves. Nobody could bring us back. It had to be Jesus. Ooh, isn't this good? Some of y'all, I'm just letting you off the hook right now, Anna. I feel freedom all through this building. Praise the Lord. And lastly, even when you hated God, maybe you were mad, somebody passed away really close to you, maybe you had your moment of, you know, like, oh, God should have fixed this. You know, God, why did you let this happen, God? Why did you let this? And then when, you know, when you're done with all of that, God still stands there. And, now, are you ready? You know, when you're done, because I know you think you know what's going on. When you're done with all that, he says this, Romans 5.10. If we were enemies, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. God invites his enemies over and reconciles them. 
He brings them in close. I know you don't like me, but let me love on you. I know you don't understand it. You might be into another religion, Buddhism or Hinduism or something else. I know, I know you don't get it, but let me, let me love on you. Even if you don't get it, just look, I put my son on the cross for you. Even if you don't get it, you got to acknowledge this. Even if you don't believe that it happened, or if you don't believe that he was the son of God, still, if he wasn't the son of God, he still did a very noble thing for me. He said he was doing it for me. When I'm doubtless, he's faithful. When I'm faithless, he's faithful. When I'm weak, he's full of strength. When I have no idea what I'm doing, he gives me wisdom. Not because I go to church. Because I'm his son. And if I, who am a father, know how to give good things to my children, how much more would your father in heaven, who is holy, full of love, the Bible says he's full of grace, how much more would he bless you? Do you know he's in your corner today? Do you know that because of what Jesus did, he's not mad at you? Jesus took all of God's wrath and exhausted it. And then... The Bible says that when Jesus was born, midnight became midday because the king was born. But then when Jesus got on the cross, the Bible says that midday became like midnight to shield the ugliness and the gruesomeness that he would put on himself so nobody could see as God, blow after blow, dealt to him your punishment, an innocent man. And when he went down to the grave, he put it all away forever and was raised so you don't have to walk around guilty. I didn't say he was going to be perfect. I said you don't have to be guilty. You can live free. 